Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Enjoy. Listeners, um, for those with more refined hearing, you may notice that me and my guest today, Dr. Christian Nemitz, Head of Political Economy at the IA, are not recording this podcast in the safety and comfort of our studio. No, we are instead here in an unnamed Weatherspoons, in an unnamed location, sampling a good selection of beers, or Christian might disagree with that. Um, why? Well, we've taken a leaf out of a book called Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World, disclaimer. I'm not an economist, but Christian is. Um, which, which details two economists, Benjamin Powell and Robert Lawson, who travel the world sampling food and drink in countries with a historical or cultural link to socialism or communist made regimes, past or present. Um, I'm keen to learn more about this book and whether there is a link between good beer and successful economies. Um, so, Christian, cheers first of all. Cheers. Um, Christian, I've been given a, I've given a brief synopsis of the book. Could you perhaps tell us in more detail? Um, are they trying to prove a link between bad food and beer and, and socialist economies? Is that the top and bottom? Uh, proof is a bit of a strong word, but they do travel to various places that either currently have socialist regimes or that had them in the past or uh, are alleged to have socialist regimes and test beer and food and use that as an occasion to tell you something about the, the history of these places, uh, the economic problems they have, and um, you could say they use the, the beer and food angle as a bit of an excuse. Yeah, um, <laughs> like, like, like we're doing. <laughs> yeah, and that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. It's as good an excuse as any. And um, so this is not supposed to be an academic study on the economics of socialism or anything of that sort. And they wouldn't claim that it could replace anything of that nature. It's more a light-hearted travel diary, uh, but also packed with quite a lot of useful information about these economies. Um, I mean, arguably, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, it's a bit of a superficial way of judging an economic system, right, you know, I don't like the beer in Cuba, so therefore socialism is bad, or control control economies are bad. Um, It's not much of an argument, is it? Uh, on its own, it wouldn't be, but they use that more as a as an entry portal to talk about other things. And you could say that if the beer is terrible, or if you have a, a, a tiny selection of beers only, or shortages of beer, that could be a symptom of wider economic dysfunctions. So the case case of Venezuela here is perhaps particularly clear. They travelled there in 2016, and uh, just before a few weeks before they arrived. Venezuela had completely run out of beer. Uh, so <laughs> that tells you something. So the, the, the argument there is not, I'm, I'm guessing the, the people who lived through the Venezuela beer shortage or are still living through it now, for them it's not the main worry that they cannot um, sample the selection of IPAs and porters and stouts that we are <laughs> having right now. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, that's probably not their main worry, but it is nonetheless um, a symptom of these wider problems. They've had these uh, endemic shortages building up since the mid-2000s and then completely running out of beer in 2016, that was just um, 
yeah, you, you could say that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. So, I mean, you talked about the supply of beer, um, but are we a bit of a danger of judging beer by our own standards? It's quite subjective, isn't it? I mean, you just you completely dislike my beer taste. We found that out. Uh, yeah, because I have uh, a vastly superior beer taste, obviously. <laughs> yeah, anyway. uh, beer is a, is a meritocratic good. But no, you, you are right. Uh, it would be a bit silly if they just said, oh, the beer tastes funny here, therefore the economy must be bad. But that's not really what they're doing. They, um, they talk more about overall availability and the range of choice that you get rather than just saying um, whether they personally like the beers or not. Yeah. And um, they also try to, where possible, bring in what you could call a bit of a control group. Um, for example, in the case of Cuba particularly, uh, they travel through Cuba for a couple of weeks, I think, and describe the food that they get. And they, they say that um, they, they quite clearly point out that what they get is already the best that the country has to offer because they have access to the convertible currency, uh, which the vast majority of Cubans couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they are nonetheless saying this is the best that you can get in the country and it's still a bit boring. So if uh, if this is the top quality, what, what must the average be like? <laughs> but the control group then that they use is they go to a neighborhood in Miami where almost everyone uh, is an expat Cuban, so a place called Little Havana in Miami, and they go to a Cuban restaurant there and they say the menu of that one restaurant that offered more choice than everything they had seen, all the restaurants, all the hotels in Cuba that they had seen taken together, uh, and they did say that they loved the food there, so it's not that they just don't like Cuban cuisine or that they expect the menu to be like in, in the, the, the United States. It's not that they're exporting their own preferences or expecting or, uh, their preferences to be met abroad. They do say, no, Cuban food, Cuban cuisine as such, brilliant, just not in Cuba. It's interesting, because what do you think the motivation behind this book is? I mean, you know, um, why is there a need for a book to remind people about the failures of uh, controlled command economies um, in the first place? Surely we know that, you know, if you're going to seize the means of production, uh, you know, beer, Brewery X will no longer be able to, you know, brew and innovate and make good beer, it'll be down to the state to do that. And that has obviously an impact on, yeah. on taste and supply. It should be obvious. And if, that, if a book like that had come out 10 years ago, I think that would have been my reaction. I would have said, OK, what's the point here? Who are you trying to convince? Surely um, even most people on the left would accept that, maybe a bit more grudgingly than we do, but even, even they would accept that uh, a planned economy is not the way to go. But no, the reason why they publish it, and they are quite clear about this, is uh, this is part of the wider socialism revival. Uh, they go through a couple of surveys from around the time um, the book came out, or, or they wrote it, uh, 2019, and they show that a lot of US millennials, uh, like their British counterparts, have a very positive view of socialism. So that, that is part of the socialism revival. Um, had its political counterpart as well. This came out at the height of uh, Bernie mania and in, in the US and, and Corbyn mania here in, in Britain. 
And this uh, was also a time when lots of socialist books came out, lots of books on socialism, new ones. Uh, you can see this in the Amazon uh, bestseller charts that uh, from 2019, there were a series of books on that subject, uh, most of them pro-socialism. Um, plus a couple of critical ones, and, and this, this is one of them. Uh, and uh, there was just this, this wave of renewed enthusiasm for socialism. So they thought, well, uh, we can't leave it all to the socialists and, um, and have them monopolize the, the bestseller charts. And there must be, somebody has to explain uh, wh why this is a bad idea. So the book has chapters on a variety of nations, case studies, if you will. Um, let's start with Sweden. Many claim that Sweden is an example of successful, successful socialism, um, but in fact it's probably better described as a social democracy, right? Which yeah. we can understand as a market economy with high levels of redistribution through taxation. Um, yes. What did they discover uh, about Sweden on their trip? Is it a socialist paradise? Um, it's neither socialist nor a paradise. The, uh, the chapter on Sweden is a very short one and that's really just to clear up this misunderstanding about what socialism is because um, maybe less so now uh, in, in, in 2022, but when the book came out, when the socialism revival was still in an earlier stage, uh, you did some, hear a lot of socialists say, well, Sweden is socialist and it's brilliant. So uh, there, there was, where it's not cl quite clear, are they confused about what socialism means? Or are they confused about the nature of the Nordic economies? Do they really think that the Swedish state um, owns a lot of companies and, and runs state-owned enterprises? That's what they believe. There, there was, or maybe some, uh, in some cases, maybe it was a mix of both. And that was just the misunderstanding that they wanted to clear up. And therefore, this is a short chapter. This is easily dealt with. Um, they just go there, uh, tell you, of course, what they already knew before about Sweden. It's not that they discover something groundbreaking or, or new there. They just tell you a bit about the economic history of Sweden and they yeah, say precisely that. It's a relatively successful market economy. It has very high taxes. It has a large welfare state. And for them, as liberal economists, that is, of course, not ideal. But it's still infinitely better than socialism. So what they say specifically about the beer uh, is, is quite simple. They say you can find perfectly nice beer in Sweden. It's just very expensive. Yeah. And then that's uh, nonetheless, uh, that sounds trivial, but that's an important point to make because you will sometimes hear people on the British left, and I'm guessing the American left will be similar there, say that, or, or give you the impression that we could have a massive expansion in public spending just by taxing a few super rich people. Um, for, on our YouTube channel, we had Gary Stevenson, for example, from Patriotic Millionaires. He very much gives you that impression. He makes it sound as if you could massively expand the state, and you and I, we would notice that. Uh, it would just be a handful of billionaires and multimillionaires, and they would pay for all that. But in high-tax economies uh, like Sweden, that's not at all the way it works. They have, they have high taxes on everyone, um, including the, the average income earner and 
low average income, and that manifests itself, among other things, uh, through high alcohol taxes. So uh, the reason why the beer is so expensive is just that it is uh, it is a high tax economy. That is one example of that. Sweden, bit of a bad example of um, it's not a socialist country as you said. Good selection of beer, just expensive. Yes. Um, and that is more or less what Nordic social democracy is in a nutshell. You can do everything that you can do in a, in a more more liberal version of capitalism. It will just be more expensive. So if you want a state apparatus, uh, a public sector of Scandin Scandinavian Nordic proportions, well then you have to be prepared to pay a lot of tax for it. So Cuba is an interesting case study at the moment. I mean last year we both did a podcast on the Cuban uprising, um, I think it was summer 2021, um, which threatened the ruling Communist Party. Some have credited the Communists and Fidel Castro with bringing universal health care, education to the people. Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders are quite vocal on this. Um, what did the what did the authors find when they went to Cuba? Um, it sounds promising if you've got universal health care, free education. Was there a lot of good beer there? Uh, no, they only found two beers and, and said they were quite boring. Um, and they used that as a starting point. What they do in Cuba mostly is um, they compare the small private sector that there is to the much larger state-run economy. Um, the Cuban economy is not entirely state-run. Uh, they had uh, these mini-liberalizations in the in the 90s as a consequence of their economic crisis that they had at the time where they permitted very small-scale self-employment in some sectors uh, one of them being hospitality so you can find some private well, it wouldn't quite be hotels, it would be more like a, like a B&B, &B, uh, we would call it here. And you can find small private restaurants. And what, what they do find, unsurprisingly, the, the privately run restaurants, the privately run uh, accommodation is far better than the counterparts in the public sector for, for the simple and obvious reason that those people wanted to come back and they wanted to recommend them. Whereas for the public sector that would be, it's a bit like imagine uh, the home office ran uh, hotels or restaurants, uh, you can imagine how awful those would be. <laughs> and that is more or less how most of the Cuban economy operates. So they find a small private sector and they, they do say this is, this is vastly better yeah. than the alternatives. However, it also shows you the limits of uh, of this very partial liberalization because even though there are private restaurants and private bars, well they still have to get the ingredients from the state-run food supply system and that's where they say this is as good as what you can make with the ingredients that they can find. It's just very limited. Very that limited. means almost all the restaurants, uh, the menu would always be the same. And uh, <laughs> that's what, why they then compare it to this Cuban restaurant that they find in, in Miami where yeah. they say well, well this is brilliant. It's not that Cubans don't know how to cook or anything. Um, they can't just not with the economy that they currently have. And I mean as well, it's worth saying, you know, <coughs> tourists who go to Cuba, beautiful country, they don't see the reality of living in Cuba outside those private restaurants, right? You know, those private sector restaurants. They, they you know, they, they like the, the Cuban cigar on a beach and enjoy a, a week in the sun, but they don't see 
the realities of Cuban communism in practice. Really. Yes, and the authors make very clear that what they see and what they experience is already the top end. This is as good as it gets, and they, they do compare that to what they see of, um, of daily normal lives and, and give you some figures to give you an, an impression of uh, what more typical living standards would be like. But yes, they, they do say um, for a while, um, and if you're a tourist and if you have access to US dollars or, or other um, hard currencies, then uh, for a while this isn't bad. And it was indeed, there was some American politician who said the other day, um, all those millennials who wax lyrical, about, wax lyrical about how great socialism is, they should spend some time in Cuba. And then there were some who thought it was a, a great own to post their pictures of holidaying in Cuba, saying, yeah, I'm in Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> Look at it, isn't it brilliant? But yes, this is, of course, uh, this is the Western tourists. Yeah. Uh, they come there with, uh, they, they can uh, get access to the the, uh, the convertible currency, they have these two parallel currencies, and um, they can experience the best of it. But, as I said before, the, the authors of that book also make clear that even though what they experience is the top end and the absolute best that the Cuban economy has to offer, even that is a bit boring. Yeah. So, a couple of weeks, fine, but even they wouldn't want to permanently live there. Um, one thing as well, I mean, to be fair, some people listening to this might be like, well, yes, it's all well and good saying um, Cuban, you know, the, generally Cuban food and beer is bland because they can't get X, Y, and Z agreements, but they, they blame the embargo. But isn't it fair to say, from my memory anyway, from the last time we did the podcast, that the embargo has been gradually lifted incrementally, so things are a lot better than it was, say, in the 60s. Yes. <laughs> when the Cuban, you know, you know, tins of spam is not like the extent of like Cuban cuisine. You know, there is there is goods flowing in and out just about. Yes, the the embargo doesn't doesn't help, and they also touch on that. They also do say that they oppose it, uh, which is unsurprising as liberal economists, uh, of course they would. Uh, they're saying that if the embargo was lifted, if anything, that could make Cuba a bit more capitalist, because that would mean, first of all, an influx of, of American tourists. Uh, for them, it was quite difficult to even get there, because normally uh, Americans aren't allowed to travel to Cuba under, under normal conditions. They can do it because they are professors, uh, they are academics, they, they can say, oh, we do this for research purposes. And I suppose you could call it that, uh, it is in a sense. Um, so they, they oppose the embargo, but they also make clear the idea that that is the reason for the economic dysfunction. That is just an implausible idea. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, I think we talked about this on, on the last uh, Cuba podcast, that Cuba doesn't trade much with anyone, and the embargo is really just, uh, it just means that they can't trade regularly with the United States. Uh, but they can trade with Mexico, they can trade with Brazil, they can trade with Canada, can trade with the EU, uh, China, whoever they want. They, they're just not a very trade-intensive economy. Mm. And that is because it is a state-run economy and 
trade would be mediated through government institutions. So they are part of a trade association of sorts, and that is with uh, like-minded, uh, with political allies. So Venezuela and Nicaragua are their main trading partners, not because they are the most obvious trading partners from an economic perspective, but because they are political allies. And that's what you get if you have a politicized economy, then these decisions would also get politicized. And there are also exemptions uh, even on the US side from the trade embargo. Um, medicines and food uh, would be, if not completely exempt, but there, uh, there would be, the rules would be much more lax. And the United States is one of the biggest food importers from the Cuban perspective. So um, it's not that they are completely cut off. Um, it's just that even to the extent that they can trade, uh, well, they can't get foreign currencies uh, yeah. because they have little uh, of, of value to offer. Uh, no export, not, uh, not enough of an export industry, and that damages them far more than the embargo ever could. I mean, I suppose the extreme example of communism today is North Korea. Did they manage to get into North Korea and explore it? Uh, I don't suppose in North Korea they would welcome you with a pint of lager when you touch down at the airport. I guess there's no uh, North Korean equivalent to a Weatherspoons in the airport lounge. And it will be <laughs> the day that they will have something like that will be a good day. <laughs> But no, they, they don't manage to get into North Korea, so therefore that chapter is uh, necessarily a bit thin. They observe it from both borders. Uh, they spend some time in South Korea first and go to uh, the, well, you don't get directly to the border, you get, you get to the, the demilitarized zone first and, and you, can, you can see it from afar. And then they get a better glimpse approaching it from the Chinese side. Um, going on a river cruise where, where you can see a little bit of North Korean life, but of course mostly um, they just write about it, what they already know rather than pretending that this is somehow uh, a unique insight that they gained on the ground. So did they sample any beer in China? Did you say they stayed in China? Did they do, yes. Did they I mean, because I mean, I'm guessing there is a decent selection of beer in China. But there is, yes. Uh, and that's, uh, in general, they, they say that um, what they see in China is, is simply that nowadays you can get all the Western brands, um, not just for beers, but uh, hotel chains and, and fast food restaurants. And it's in that sense very westernized because it is now a mixed economy rather than a socialist economy and therefore you can access lots of things and that is no longer the problem they, they go I think to an Irish pub and uh, get the same beers that, that you, would, you would get here uh, I should maybe say they, they're not uh, the beers they, they try don't have to be local um, they're not saying that uh, they only count beers that are brewed on site so if it's imported beers uh, but if, if you can get a wide selection of those that's just as good no problem with that so they are, they are not uh, not protectionist of course so the, the, the beers that they have in Sweden are Belgian beers, but yeah. nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. if, uh, if Belgium has the comparative advantage in brewing, and, and that's also the case in Sweden. They try one Chinese beer, the, the Tsingtao, I think, which you can also get here, 
uh, but they're not making it about that, um, about uh, whether this is better or worse than, than they, uh, in their um, perspective than, than a Western beer. It's more about they, they comment on the overall availability and say, yeah, in China, that's not an issue anymore. Of course, it would have been um, in, well, definitely in Mao's days, and probably the early stages of, of liberalization. It took a while, but now China is a, a mixed economy, still has plenty of problems. They're not saying we should try to be like China. They're not praising it as a, as a model. And they do talk about the political repression, because they speak at a conference, and then some of the conference organizers then get into trouble with the wow. Chinese authorities. So they're, they're by no means saying uh, everything's brilliant in China, but they are saying compared to Mao's days, and they talk about the, the famine, the Great Leap Forward, and yeah. the, the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, and all that. And they compared to that, this is uh, this is a massive improvement. Um, let's look at a former Soviet, uh, former uh, Soviet Republic of Georgia. Georgia was invaded and annexed by the Soviet Union in 1922 and became one of the one of the, its constituent republics. Um, thankfully, it gained independence in 1991. I understand, Christian, that they embraced Western values and had a pro-EU NATO foreign policy until, unfortunately, Russia annexed parts of its territory in 2008. Uh, some similarities there to now. Um, did Powell and Lawson see the reformist pro-liberal politics of the noughties in their visit, or did they just see the relics of communism? Uh, they see a mix of both. Um, I didn't notice before. Uh, Georgia is maybe the country that I learned most about from from reading this book. They say their liberalisation uh, program started very late in the day, uh, later than other former parts of the, of the Soviet Union or, or Eastern European countries, uh, for that matter. So they only really started in the in the mid 2000s. But nonetheless, despite being a, a late starter, they did it in a, in a much better way than Russia or, or Ukraine, uh, which they also visit. They say uh, that Russia and Ukraine have uh, crony capitalist economies dominated by oligarchs, by an oligarchy. And that had to do with the way the privatization process there worked, that it was uh, done in a, in a super corrupt way, that you had uh, Communist Party officials basically selling assets uh, to themselves at, uh, at knockoff prices. And um, then this created private monopolies, which then were in a position to lobby for uh, the preservation of, of their monopolies and you, you've got uh, an economy which did create some growth but which also uh, mostly works for uh, for the politically well connected and so the, the Georgian case is different simply because one one thing that they point out was that the privatization process was much more transparent so they use open auctions uh, that anyone can participate in and um, they say it's, it's basically it's a website uh, that anyone can access. They even put the link in there, in, into the book. Uh, you can open the website and they have a list of all the state-owned assets.
things that are up for sale. You can see who is bidding and how much they're bidding. And that is the way their privatization process works. If you do it like that, open and transparent, it, it would be much harder to subvert that process and turn that into um, a crony capitalist oligarchy like Russia is and like Ukraine sadly also is. And they say, of course, in absolute terms, Georgia is still a poor country. And they're, they're certainly not saying uh, this is the, the shining city upon the hill. But that is maybe the place that, are most, that they are most hopeful about. Um, I hope that, that is justified. I hope they're not romanticizing it. But they do say, uh, even though it started late, they've made a lot of progress and they are on the right track. They do say they are still held back by uh, the factors that you mentioned. And mm. Of course, if you have a hostile neighbor that can uh, annex territories anytime, then that's going to uh, make you less enthusiastic if you are a potential investor. Uh, so they have all those issues. But I do say, uh, food-wise, uh, and, uh, and also the wines, they single out the Georgian wines. They're saying their wine industry is now thriving again. Mm. Uh, Georgia has a claim that, that they say they are the ones who invented wine in the first I, place. I, heard, I, heard. Uh, I can't judge whether that's historically true, but uh, either way, they, they have uh, clearly a long standing tradition of, of wine growing, and uh, the authors are saying it's coming back now, it's even attracting tourists, and it's on the way up. Well, I mean, not, you're a bit of a wine connoisseur, right? I mean, we've spoken outside the podcast, you like a glass of wine, you know your stuff sure. a lot more than me. Have you ever tried Georgian wine? Is it good? Unfortunately not. I, but I'd love to. It sounds You're going to have to now. Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly <laughs> will. On, on the next podcast, I'll give you a, a rundown. Um, of the wine. Of the wine. Um, assessment. Had this book been written in the 1980s, surely the ideal case study to test this thesis, if you would, would have been the difference between beer in East and West Germany. Um, surely even East Germany, albeit under communism, would still have lived up to its heritage and brewed good beer. It's almost like saying if, if Scotland became communist, surely they'd still be able to make good haggis. <laughs> Well, I'm not so sure they would, uh, at least not um, the same quality and reliability, or not for long. Um, so, they, yes, you, you're right, it's probably the least bad example. They did not have beer shortages, for example. Uh, East Germany had uh, per capita consumption, I think, was about the same, uh, per capita consumption of beer was about the same as West Germany. Um, and the Nonetheless, the people who remember their beers, uh, either uh, people who lived in the GDR at the time or, or Westerners who visited it and, and who did what you just described, uh, the, trying the beers in, on the Western side and then popping over, they generally say that the beers were of a, of a lower quality. And that's anecdotal. Unfortunately, I was never able to try an East German beer the way they were at the time. I was, uh, I was 10 years old at the time of reunification so was are you giving your edge away now yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's an open secret uh, it's uh, i wasn't much of a beer connoisseur at the time but um yes anecdotally that's that's uh, what, what people have tried to 
uh, that's what they say that um, it was it was cheap it was available but the quality was was quite low and that the, had a, there's a reason for that which is simply that they were often short on some of the ingredients so they tried to make whatever they had go further uh, diluted it inflated it put all sorts of stuff into it uh, they didn't quite stick to the the old uh, beer purity laws they, they were not uh, as religious about that as West Germany was um, and even though I haven't tried what, what I remember is a, a report by uh, West German brewers who went over there just before reunification uh, around that time and and they uh, came up with an assessment of the brewing industry. They wanted to know, is this something that we can invest in, something that could be lucrative, something is, is there productive potential that can be saved, maybe. And uh, the, the West German brewers were shocked by how, how bad the, the quality standards were and also by how old-fashioned the brewing equipment was. Right. Uh, so one of them said uh, they are technologically uh, a generation behind us. Wow! Uh, so what 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 happened basically was they, they simply nationalized the old breweries that they inherited. Um, a lot of them, it has to be said, could be saved. A lot of them are still around. Some are quite successful. Uh, I don't know if you know the if 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 you know the the series Two and a Half Men. Uh, yes. The comedy yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you remember that uh, Charlie is when he's sitting on his uh, terrace or, or, uh, or balcony or whatever it is, uh, the, the, the seaside view. He always has a beer. Yeah. That's an East German beer. That's that's Radeberger. Ah. Um, and that is uh, one of their one of the brands that were saved after reunification, doing quite well. It's 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 an okay beer. I don't mind a, a, a good Radeberger. Uh, but it has to be said, uh, even there, that. That's simply a brewery that they took over. So this isn't something that was set up in uh, under the socialist regime. This was already around in, in Kaiser Wilhelm's days. And that's the thing. Uh, all the East German breweries that I could think of right now, they're all either new, uh, they were either set up after reunification, yeah. or they are far older than the socialist regime. They, they, were, they were all from Bismarck's days, but nothing in between. So there isn't one that they created under that regime and that would still be around. Yeah. There isn't a people's pint or a... No, no, no pint no. of people's. No, no. Well, before doing a bit of research, I, I was looking at um, beer in the USSR. Apparently they didn't even have tin beer because there was a metal, uh, they didn't ration the metal shortage, so whatever metal you use, aluminium or whatever. They, so people have to go with a basically like glass in hand and get it out of a tap, so like some queuing up to get like a, you know, you have to bring a bucket with you, like fill your beer like that. I mean, well, that, that would be quite the achievement. I thought they had massive uh, reserves of aluminium and were an exporter even. But, but yes, that's those would be the dysfunctions of a plant economy. Well, uh, I think, well, we've supped up our pint now. We're going to have to get another one. So I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening to everyone. No doubt, um, we'll raise a glass and to the great selection of beers available thanks to free trade and open liberal economies. That's right. Cheers to capitalism. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IA London. 
If you want to help contribute to the IA's digital output, please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive membership perks whilst helping us continue to produce stimulating educational output. To become an online patron, click the link in the show notes.